Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. I see the value of the PhD, but I also recognize that higher education, like frankly our field, is built on the vestiges of white privilege and elitism. So long as there's an expectation that every curator will have a PhD, we are doing ourselves a disservice in terms of our commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's Dr. Jill Dupi, the Beaux-Arts Director and Chief Curator of the University of Miami's Lowe Art Museum since 2014. She was previously Director and Chief Curator of University Museums at Fairfield University, where she was also an Assistant Professor of Art History. She received her BA in Political Science and French Literature from Mount Holyoke College and her JD from American University's Washington College of Law, graduating summa cum laude. Dr. Dupi holds both an MA and a PhD in art history from the University of London's Burbeck College and the University of Virginia, respectively. A Rome Prize recipient, her doctoral dissertation was about cultural politics in Bourbon Naples, 1734 to 1799. Her prior museum experience includes work at the Royal Academy of Arts, the Art Institute of Chicago, the Snight Museum of Art, the National Gallery of Art, and the Wallace Collection. Dr. Dupi is a fellow of the American Academy in Rome, the Leading Change Institute, and the Getty Leadership Institute. She's a trustee of the Association of Art Museum Directors and is a member of the American Alliance of Museums, Art Table, and the International Women's Forum. Jill, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Max. It's great to be here. Glad to have you fresh from a break, which you well deserved. And the audience should know you're a triple threat. You're an art historian, a lawyer, and a polyglot, and you're credentialed in ways that fewer and fewer museum directors are these days. Could you share a little bit about how your legal training informs your work as a museum director? Absolutely. I should just volunteer that I did not have a master plan when I went to law school and then pursued a PhD in art history. So it has been a surprise for me as I've gone through my career to see how useful actually that early training has been, whether it's copyright questions or deaccessioning or deeds of gift. Those sorts of issues come up in museum practice on an almost daily basis. And while I do have a JD and was successfully admitted to the bar in the Commonwealth of Virginia, I am, of course, not a practicing attorney, but what that training has left me with is a slightly different mindset, perhaps, or approach to problems than some other directors might take. And that is one of risk aversion, frankly, and problem solving. <laughs> so thinking about the what ifs, which sometimes I know frustrates my colleagues. Well, what if? <laughs> no, it's not going to happen, but what if? Mm -hmm. uh, so that has been really very useful for me, as well as dealing with problems that are live, not the hypothetical, but the real problems, understanding where the issues lie and not having the answers necessarily myself. There are tremendous experts out there in IP and other things which are certainly necessary to museum practice, but knowing when to call in the experts has also been very helpful for me and is definitely a result of that, that early training I had. And what about all these languages you have? How does that affect your work? I live in Miami, which is a very <laughs> cosmopolitan city. It's helpful to be able to communicate with a variety of individuals in a variety of different languages. And Italian in particular was learned while living in Italy. And I think that those sorts of experiences of immersing oneself in a different culture is also really important, both on a human level, but also 
as a museum director, since our job, as I see it, is in the main to provide fora or platforms for communication, the sharing of different cultures, amplifying different voices, those sorts of things. So familiarity or fluency with foreign language is important, but it's what lies behind it. The understanding Mm -hmm. of different peoples and different cultures is even more important. You mentioned you're not someone given to using your law degree on the job necessarily, but you can, I assume, give us your sense of some of the biggest looming legal issues that are facing art museums at the moment. I think that the biggest legal issue is really related to restitution, cultural property, culturally sensitive material, decolonizing museums. Those are really important legal questions. And of course, there are very significant ethical issues bundled with those questions as well. But I see them as being incredibly complex, particularly looking forward, prospectively collecting. It's very complicated to grow collections in those fields of culturally sensitive, anthropological, ancient material while feeling confident that you're not stepping on any legal or ethical landmines crossing any boundaries. So I really see that as an area of tremendous complexity, whether it's African art or ancient Mediterranean material. I think that that's really uh, one of the most pressing and longstanding, frankly, legal issues that continues to face the field today. One of the tough things is when a local collector or a collector who's an alumnus says to you, hey, I've got this great collection, I'm ready to give it away, here you go. And then you have to have a tough conversation, right? Right. One of the most difficult part, I think, of my job, of any museum director's job, is saying no. It's really hard because people come to you in all earnestness with all the good intentions in the world of wanting to be beneficent and share their treasures with the wider world. But we have a job to do, and that job entails abiding by best practices, both uh, legal and ethical. And so that sometimes, more often than not, when it comes to challenging material, means politely declining. So yes, it's not fun. It's not something I enjoy doing. But I do also see it as an opportunity to educate those individuals in terms of the reasons why we can't accept this proposed gift. It presents an opportunity, again, to shed light onto the broader picture. I think that when you take the time to have those conversations, it really can end on a very positive note because you're helping to expand the understanding of individuals who really might not otherwise know. There's no reason why a layperson should have an in-depth or nuanced understanding of best practices governing museum collections. Jill, you mentioned the nature of your training. Now, you have a doctorate in art history, which is Not the case with a lot of newer directors. Fewer and fewer have that advanced training. How important is that, do you view, for yourself in your day job? I'm of two minds. I think that as with the law degree, the training that one goes through in pursuing a PhD is very rigorous in terms of just the hard skills of research, analysis, and writing. And that's useful on a daily basis, of course, particularly if you, like I, am both a director and a curator. I need to know what I'm doing and dealing with material and presenting it to the public, to a variety of publics. I also, though I'm not doctrinaire, I see the value of the PhD, but I also recognize that higher education, like frankly our field, is built on the vestiges of white privilege and elitism 
so long as there's an expectation that every curator will have a PhD, we are doing ourselves a disservice in terms of our commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I have a lot of time and space for other people's experiences, comparable professional experience, but also experiences that I may not understand because their background is different from mine. So I think that it's exciting to see that there is increasingly, I feel, amongst the younger ranks of curators, a move towards different backgrounds, different experiences, educational or otherwise. But I also feel that as with any field, there is a place for expertise. It's really important to invite the public to give their opinion on art, to give them a platform for their own voices and to then amplify those voices. I don't want to dismiss or diminish that in any way, but it is also a field that is fact-based. And so I think that there is and always will be, I hope, a place for research at the doctoral level or equivalent the one change that I would like to see in terms of PhD programs, and perhaps this is happening already and I'm just not aware, is um, having museum education training incorporated into those skill sets, those trainings. If an individual who's pursuing a doctoral degree in art history or equivalent thinks that they want to go on to work in a museum context, I think it would be really helpful to have some of that pedagogy in terms of connecting with audiences at the front end rather than on the ground. That's the kind of experience that one usually gains once you're in the job. And I think coming into a curatorial position with some of those skills in place would only benefit both the incumbent as well as the institution and the audiences that that person is serving. Possibly also sensitivity to the issue that is challenging the field in another respect, which is deaccessioning. And you've been a go-to expert about this on various panels and spoken very knowledgeably. Can you summarize your thoughts about the proper limits that art museums should observe when disposing of artworks? I think it goes back to basics. What are museums for? That's a question that I've asked myself a lot over the course of the last 25 years, but almost daily over the course of the past 18 months. And I think that fundamentally, even though museums are all different, we're all different in terms of scope and scale and budget and focus and geography and communities, we're all different. But for those of us who are collecting organizations, as opposed to Kunsthalle, who are obviously not collecting we are, I don't want to call us treasure houses, but we have a responsibility to steward objects for future generations. And this is a tradition, as I know you know, going all the way back to Alexandria, if not earlier, to antiquity and beyond. We need to not lose sight of that. And I also feel that many of the conversations about deaccessioning in the last year, plus in particular, have become confusing when we reduce the conversation to people versus objects. I'm a big believer in both and, not either or. So I don't think that we need to make a choice between being stewards of objects and organizations that serve our communities in deep, engaged, and meaningful ways. I think that the collections must be tools for the programming that we do, the engagement that we do. So it all comes down to me to not forgetting one of our most fundamental purposes is, and that is taking care of the works entrusted to our stewardship in perpetuity, perhaps. 
that also in my mind means not monetizing the works that we hold. And I think that that's another inflection point too that has really muddied the waters. The art market, the art world has really changed the way people see museum collections. There's just no way that you can build a collection, particularly of contemporary art, but even of older art and not think about values. And I think that that too, because we have in some cases precipitous values, six, seven digits for a single work of art, it has increased the stakes and um, deflected attention away from one of the fundamental purposes of museums. So I am remarkably boring in terms of being a kind of middle of the road person. I really do believe in deaccessioning as an appropriate and important tool for creating and maintaining a healthy museum collection. But I think that we need guardrails in place to prevent the monetization of our collection objects, that is to say, to reduce it to the piggy bank, to paraphrase Stephen Weil, because it's it's a recipe for disaster, I think, once you start to look at your collection as an asset, a monetary asset rather than a community asset. You have an unusual mission because at the low, you have 11 collecting departments and an encyclopedic collection that's rare in its breadth in the state of Florida. As you mentioned, the art world is increasingly focused on art of the present, the value of that art. So how do you go about making use of historical material to both the city of Miami and surrounding counties and the campus itself? That's such a good question. And I think that it's one of the great challenges for encyclopedic museums. Uh, How do we take art that frankly may not be relevant to somebody who is not Catholic? Um, You know, they have no reason to understand the lexicon of a Renaissance painting. They're not of European descent. Walk into a gallery filled with paintings from the 14th or 15th century I think actually one of our students said it best. I don't understand this church art. That was actually a real epiphany for me because, of course, anyone who has studied art history walks in and you get it. You know what you're looking at immediately because you've studied the language. You know the language of art. You know when you see an angel with a lily and a woman kneeling in front of the figure that that's the Annunciation and all that that implies. But there's no reason that anyone walking in off of the street, particularly someone from a younger generation, should know that and ergo that that painting is irrelevant and meaningless. So I think that it's a really exciting challenge to think of ways to build projects. One of the projects that I've really enjoyed watching develop here at the Low, funded generously by our friend Max Marmer at the Crest Foundation, is called New Stories, Hidden Voices. And I may have that reversed. We've taken a number of our beautiful Crest paintings, put them up online with some information that the user can get by hovering over hot points on the art. So you can understand what the white lily is for, who this person is who is kneeling. So if you want that historical fact-based information, it's there for you. And there's also global context. So the painting that was painted in 1432 in Venice, you understand what was happening elsewhere in the world, which I think is also important, having that broader, more global view. But what I really enjoy is there's also a place where you can put in your own comments. What does this remind you of? What does it make you feel? What does it make you think? How does this echo what's happening in today's world? And I think that it's all about relevancy. And so finding ways to connect those historic works of art to make them feel relevant and a part of one's life when in fact they may not be is both the challenge and a really exciting opportunity. 
And reaching those students is obviously a challenge, as you mentioned. What are some of the other pressures bearing down on university museum collections these days? I don't think they're new challenges. The largest challenge, bar none, that I see college and university museums, collections and museums facing is that obviously we're part of a larger organization. And that means that on many campuses, especially the largest campuses, there are many mouths to feed. And that's the deal you make, right? You're part of this really exciting, really interesting, really dynamic interdisciplinary entity, but there are also a lot of other units on your campus that need support. Finding that sweet spot where you are understood as being part of the academy and not just an auxiliary or service unit, I think is really, really critical. And that goes hand in hand with establishing for senior administrators in particular, but also members of the broader community, the value that you bring. Again, not just as a frill or something nice to have, but really as a hub for innovation and learning, an accelerator, a sandbox, call it what you will. I think we are all of those things is um, really important, but also sometimes hard to communicate and convey. And obviously, if the value, and I don't mean monetary, of course, but the value, whether patent or latent of an academic art museum is not well understood, you're in an incredibly vulnerable position when it comes to crises. So COVID is the crises of all crises, right? When budget cuts were so draconian. What actually gives me great hope and a tremendous sense of relief is that there was not a tidal wave of forced deaccessions on academic campuses from their collections during the crisis, which is, of course, still ongoing. And that's something that I I was very worried about, thinking about the, the economic crash of 2009 and Brandeis and the Rose Art Museum, of course, remains the paradigm in that instance of how things can go sideways very quickly. But we haven't seen that, not in any really dramatic way. And I think part of that has to do with the advocacy of the field, the academic art museum field, both through AAMG and AAMD, as well as AAM. And also because of the digital pivot we were all forced to make, it provided many of our colleagues on college and university campuses across the country with an opportunity to shine. I know that on our campus, in those early weeks when the University of Miami had to make this very abrupt and rapid pivot uh, to safeguard the students and the local community, the low was able to push out digital content almost immediately. We're very, very fortunate to have a Knight-funded director of digital engagement. He's so pivotal in my eyes that he's the acting head of education as well. And with his support, we were able to create really from nothing. We had nothing ready to go, but we were able to start pushing out content immediately, which was the good news story of the University of Miami as other units were gearing up to make that pivot as well. And I think that that was happening on different scales across the country. So to go back to your original question, what's the biggest challenge? I think it's being misunderstood and therefore undervalued, which leaves an institution very vulnerable in all sorts of ways. There's a broad misconception amongst the general public that college and university museums are fully funded by their parent organizations. So we don't have to worry about anything. Um, There's really no accountability that our bread is always buttered, and that's just not true. Looking at the statistics, the vast majority of academic museums receive 
around about 50% of their operating budget from their parent organization. The rest is up to them in terms of all of the things that municipals do for revenue generation. As you mentioned, university museums did escape, for the most part, a claim on their collections as assets. That's not so much true of municipal museums, where there are no other distractions for the boards, <laughs> whereas at university, the provost has other concerns. So what do you suppose are the pressures that are now facing municipal museums not affiliated with universities in this next chapter? What I've witnessed talking to colleagues who are in the director's chairs at municipal organizations is a more apparent struggle with diversity, equity, access, and inclusion, and getting everyone rowing in the same direction. Because of course, everyone is on a different place on that continuum. Everyone has different aspirations, different backgrounds, a different knowledge base. But it seems to me that staff tend to be much more ahead of the curve in terms of their just, in my opinion, demand for greater diversity, equity, and inclusion, whereas boards who tend to be from an older generation, different backgrounds, different contexts, are not quite there yet. And I think reconciling those positions is a tremendous challenge right now for a number of directors at municipal museums. And it's something that is just not such a struggle for college and university museums because we tend to be part of more progressive communities with greater activism and greater awareness in no small measure because we have literally thousands, if not tens of thousands of people between the ages of 18 and 25 who are really pushing the issue, pushing the conversation. So I think that that's one of the most significant differences that I have seen. We have many of the same challenges in terms of deaccessioning, though to your point, I feel like actually to my great surprise, frankly, the municipal museums have had more serious struggles with deaccessioning pressures than the embedded institutions in this last 18 months or so. And you have various roles as a leader in the field, among them as a trustee of the Association of Art Museum Directors. You also co-chair of the task force for the protection of university collections. One of the issues around protection is the field of art history, which feels like a very protected preserve to this day. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about how the field of art history can, in fact, attract more people of color. Such a good question. I hate to cite pipeline um, because I know that's kind of the knee-jerk reaction, but I think the pipeline's so incredibly important. And for me, pipeline starts really kind of in the pre-K years. I mean, it's great that there's an emphasis on diversifying or providing high-quality educational opportunities for people of all backgrounds in secondary, middle school, and high school. But I think that we need to start even sooner where possible. Of course, that's far beyond the capacity of most, if not all, museums. So what can we do or what can art history programs do? Going back to your earlier question about how important the PhD is, I think that that's something that those training programs, as well as directors and chief curators who are hiring, need to reflect upon critically. What are we looking for? What is the framework of our institution? It's been really eye-opening for me to think about how white privilege, and for those people who don't know me, I am a white woman, 
how white privilege really informs and permeates so much of what we do at every level, including training programs in art history or any other discipline, I think, that is more traditional in nature. So creating space, not only space for broader research in areas that may not really fit within the confines of classical small C or traditional art history is important, but I also think making space for different approaches and methodologies is just as, if not more, important. Your role at the Lowe includes not only running the museum, but you're also the curator at the helm. And I'm wondering about your training in the Italian Baroque and Rococo, which is rare among museum directors these days. Are you engaged in research in that field today? Do you have time to do that? Alas, no. The best that I've been able to do of late is to research and write a very brief blurb for our weekly low-on-the-go art blast focused on an Italian painting. I'm guessing there were no footnotes. I think I might have dropped in an asterisk somewhere (laughs) (laughs) at the bottom. But it's so important, as you know very well, to know your audience and 18th century Italian art is wildly interesting to me, but it's just not going to, I think, engage our audiences here in Miami. So, But there's so much sex. There's so much intrigue. (laughs) There's so much violence. Come on. There is. There is. It's a good story. I will say this, though, because I think that that's one of the really, really important roles that, that the low plays. There is so much great art in Miami. Right. I mean, it's just alive right now in terms of what is happening. But most of it was created in 1980 or after. And that leaves a tremendous amount of art to be shared with the community. So looking at our exhibition roster over the course of the next three to four years, we're doing shows on American Impressionism, contemporary Japanese ceramics. We are partnering with the Hispanic Society of America from New York contextualizing actually really important works from their collection and pairing them with contemporary works from another significant collection here in Miami. Those I see as the really exciting opportunities. So who knows if Capo di Monte wants to do a a pop-up show with Below, I would certainly take that call. And some of the secret sauce is getting artists who are at work today to take a look at your collection and react to it and hang it and respond to it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Looking forward to seeing what you do as everybody emerges from the cloud of the pandemic. And thanks for making the time. It was absolutely my pleasure, Max. Thanks for inviting me to have this chat with you. I really enjoyed it. We've been speaking today with Dr. Jill Dupi, the Beaux-Arts Director and Chief Curator of the University of Miami's Low Art Museum. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you liked what you heard, leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners find their way to us.